This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Thank you, Darren, for using technology to send us that video from Israel. We're going to talk about both those things this morning. The pastor is away and you still showed up. You are the true bride of Christ right here. Thank you for showing up. I told the first service this morning that I got some great advice from my husband. He said, whatever you do, don't be boring. And I said, I doubt Shannon ever yells that at Darren as he's walking out the door. And after the nine o'clock, my husband Troy came up to me and he said, you could have at least told them that I was kidding. (laughs) So he was kidding. (laughs) But um, if I could open us with prayer and maybe I should pray that the Lord will help me not be boring this morning. But Lord, we come before your throne because you are the one who is high and lifted up. You are the holy one and we worship you. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. We welcome you to teach us and lead each one of us and guide us in the way that each of us can understand. We pray that as it's written in your word, that your word will be living and active today in each one of us. And may your name be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, Darren taught from Mark 13 where the apostles asked Jesus about the sign of his coming and of the end of the age. And he asked if I would expand on that a bit more. When I was a little girl, it was common for our pastor or visiting pastors to say things like, Jesus is coming again, or Jesus will be returning. But somewhere along the way over the last few decades, that message has been lost in the church. Just last week, I was listening to the radio and I heard about a survey that was taken among pastors. The survey was done by Lifeway Research, and it said that 98% of pastors do not teach about the second coming of Christ. I couldn't believe that, so I actually rewound the podcast to make sure that I heard it correctly, and they said 98% of pastors do not teach about the second coming of Christ. So conduit is in that rare 2%. I liken the American church today to Eutychus in Acts chapter 20, if you remember him. He was sitting in a windowsill and he was in a crowded room and it was warm because the room was filled with lamps. And at some point, the preacher who was Paul got really long-winded and Eutychus fell asleep and then fell out the window. And I say that the church today is much like Eutychus, falling asleep. Like the foolish virgins, much of the church isn't ready for the return of Christ. We know from the Bible that 333 prophecies, there there are 333 prophecies concerning Jesus. And only 109 were fulfilled with his first coming. All 109 fulfilled with 100% accuracy. There are 224 prophecies, more than double, that are yet to be fulfilled in his second coming. Prophecy is God telling us about what's going to happen in the future. And 27% of the Bible is prophecy. 
But often that 27%, particularly in times prophecies, are skipped over by people in the church. But those passages prove time and again who God is. Only the God of the Bible can tell us the future. There are over 1,800 prophecies in the Bible, and 500 of them have already been fulfilled again, all of them with 100% accuracy. So when we open the Bible, we shouldn't yawn. We should be in awe of who God is and what he's done and what he will do. Because there's no other ancient or modern religious text that has fulfilled prophecy. The Hindu Vedas, Islam's Quran, the Book of Mormon, none of them, no one has fulfilled prophecy. Only the one true God of the Bible. And he does exactly as he says he will do. In Isaiah 46, God says, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come? I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. We need to know that prophecy unfolds. A prophecy could take hundreds of years. When Isaiah prophesied about the birth of Christ, he did that 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. This is the same scripture that Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Luke chapter 5 and he read. He read these exact same verses, but Jesus ends with this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it goes on to say, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus did a mic drop, boom. I fulfilled this prophecy. But look at where Jesus stopped reading. There's a period at the end of the year of the Lord's favor. But in Isaiah, there's a comma. Nobody stops reading at a comma. Why in the world did Jesus stop reading at that comma? Because his first coming wasn't about the day of God's vengeance. His first coming was about favor. It was about grace. That comma literally gives us a pause in that prophecy. And we've been living in that comma ever since. We've been living in the age of grace, the age of favor. That was his, that, that was his first coming and the second coming is about God's wrath and vengeance on a rebellious and disobedient world. 
Francis Chan said that he was speaking about the wrath of God one time and people came up to him and they said, oh, Francis, that's just the judgy God of the Old Testament. And he said, yeah, he really mellows out in Revelation. (laughs) And a lot of people confuse Revelation. A lot of people say that Revelation is nothing more than allegory. It's just a story. But if it was allegory, God would have told us that. Just like he tells us when something's a parable, when something's a song, when something's a lament. But he tells us six times that it's prophecy. The prophecies of Jesus' first coming are feel-good in nature, what with the angels and the shepherds and the nativity scenes. But the second coming are often scary Those prophecies scare people, even in the church, and many times they're ignored. But Jesus himself refers to his second coming at least 21 times. And there are over 1,500 Old Testament prophecies that refer to the second coming. The Bible mentions the first coming, well, for every time the Bible mentions the first coming, the second coming is mentioned eight times. There are two distinct phases to Jesus' second coming. There's the seizing of his bride, and then there is the second coming when he actually comes right down to earth and his feet touch the earth. There isn't time to cover everything about these two distinct phases, but I did want to go over just a couple of verses. From 1 Thessalonians 4, It says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word caught up, caught up together in verse 17 is the Greek word harpazo. And it means to seize, to catch up or snatch away. The Latin translation of that word is rapturo, and the English translation of that word is rapture. But did you notice that it said that only the dead in Christ will rise? It's not just any dead. It's only those dead who were found to be in Christ during their lifetime. The dead in Christ rise first, and then those who are alive those who are dead in Christ while they're living will be caught up, will be seized, will be snatched away together to meet the Lord with them in the air and be with the Lord forever. So we know that at some point, God is going to tell Jesus, go get your bride. And Jesus is going to snatch, to snatch us. We're the bride and he's the bridegroom. And nobody, despite what you hear, despite what you read, nobody on earth knows when that time will be. The Bible clearly tells us that only God knows. It says that not even Jesus knows, not even, not even the angels. 
But verse 18 tells us that we are supposed to encourage one another with these words. We're not supposed to be afraid. And the only reason that anyone would be afraid would be afraid as if they're not in Christ. So compare that now to Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Zechariah 14 tells us that one day Jesus will step on the Mount of Olives at his second coming and it will actually split in two. Darren pointed out the, the Mount of Olives there in Israel. So look at, look at these differences. There's the seizing of the bride and the second coming. When Jesus comes for his bride, he steps into the air, not on earth. For his second coming, he actually returns physically to the earth. When he comes for his bride, he comes as deliverer. At his second coming, he returns as warrior. When he comes for his bride, he will literally come only for his bride. But at his second coming, he will return with his bride. She is part of that army on horses coming down out of heaven. When he comes for his bride, he comes in love for her. When he comes at the second coming, he returns in wrath and judgment. And when he comes for his bride, he will come as our bridegroom. And at his second coming, he will return as king of kings and lord of lords. And the Bible says we cannot know the day of his return, but what we can know is the season of his return. And that's what I want to talk about in our, in our remaining time. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus encourages us to interpret the signs of the times. Not to be freaks about it, but to be aware of the nearness of his return. To be watchmen up on those ramparts, to be watchmen on the wall for others. And just like signs on the highway, God's signs re regarding the return of Christ will get closer and closer and closer as we draw closer to the return of Christ. And today we can see the frequency of those signs happening in the world. We can see that they're converging, happening at once. In Daniel 12, Daniel had been given prophecies and he was confused, he didn't understand them. And he said, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise 
will understand. The words of the scroll were sealed until the time of the end, and those who are wise will understand. And with that as a backdrop, I want to look at some prophecies from the Bible that generations before us, like Daniel, didn't understand. But we do. We are the generation that's understanding them. There are way too many to cover that's, that's happening in the world that we see in the Bible, but I do want to go over a couple of them, a few of them. In a book called The Millennium and Related Events, which was written in 1889 by David Bosworth, he wrote, when you see Israel becoming a nation, you will know the end is near. Now that took tremendous faith in the 1800s because Israel didn't even exist as a nation. But Bosworth read the Bible, he read the prophecies, and he knew that one day Israel would become a nation again, setting into motion the time clock for the return of Christ. In Mark 13, 2, Jesus said about the temple, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. In 70 AD, the Romans burned and sacked Jerusalem. And just like Jesus prophesied, not one stone was left standing at the temple. And the Romans had a scorched earth policy. Burn everything, destroy everything in the way. And the Jews scattered, they went all over the earth, but a remnant remained. And in, one, in 135 AD, Roman Emperor Hadrian changed the name of Israel to Syria-Palestina. He used two names of two of Israel's greatest enemies because he wanted to eradicate the memory of the Jews from the land. He wanted to erase the name Israel from conscience. So the Jews scattered all over the earth what was left, but still there was a remnant that remained there. And in Psalm 83, it says, they lay crafty plans against your people. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be, remem be remembered no more. And headlines today often remind us that there are countries and there are people that still want to wipe Israel out as a nation. Emperor Hadrian's efforts were quite successful because today even many Christians are confused about the land and what the name of it is. A few years ago, I was sitting in a Christmas Eve service and the pastor came out and during his message, he said, when Jesus was born in Palestine. A few days later, I, uh, later, I was talking to one of the elders from that church and he said that over 10,000 people had visited for Christmas Eve services. Over 10,000 people heard the misinformation that Jesus was born in Palestine. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, not Palestine. And there isn't time to walk through God's covenant with his people and, uh, and his covenant regarding the land but a covenant was always made, made between two very awake people. But when God made the covenant with Abraham, Abraham was actually sleeping because the covenant wasn't based on Abraham's faith, faithfulness or on his descendants' faithfulness. 
that covenant was based on God's faithfulness. And the Bible says that God's covenant is an everlasting covenant. It says he remembers his covenant forever and that he cannot lie. If that's not true, then we're all doomed here today. Because if he can so easily break a covenant with the Jews, then our covenant with Jesus is also broken. But God can't do that. God says, my covenant is an everlasting covenant. But God told the Jews many times that if they disobeyed him, that he would drive them out of the land. But he also told them he would bring them back into the land. He even told them what the land would become without them in it. The land would become a wasteland. There isn't time to read all of this prophecy from Ezekiel 36, but I really encourage you to read it because it's incredible. In Ezekiel 36, God talks to Ezekiel and he tells him, prophesy to the land. And Ezekiel says, the, the, the prophecy says, they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides. They gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make its pasture lands a prey. After nearly 2,000 years of Roman occupation the, the, and, and the crusaders and, and the Muslims occupied the land, the Turks and many others, but the land was desolate. It was a wasteland. These occupiers never did one thing beneficial to the land, never planted a tree. As a matter of fact, they went in, they raised the trees, cut them all down. Mark Twain visited the land in 1867. And if TripAdvisor had been around, he would have posted a withering review. He had nothing good to say about, about the land. There was complete and utter destruction in the land. But then God told Ezekiel to prophesy this to the land. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. And they shall possess you, and you shall be their inheritance. And in verse 27, God says to the Jews, For I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you back into your own homeland. Ezekiel prophesied to the land, get ready. God's bringing his people back. And Ezekiel 37 God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to a valley of dry bones. He says, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, I will bring you into the land of Israel. I will place you in your own land. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Psalm 66, eight says, who hath heard of such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day or a nation be born at once. On May 14th, 1948, the United Nations declared that a nation was born at once when Israel became a nation. And this has never happened in the history of the world. An ancient people group has never been driven from their land, scattered around the world, and then brought back into that own land nearly 2,000 years later and proclaimed a country. 
And you know what's interesting is that wherever the Jews were in the world, they never absorbed into the culture. Never. They always kept their own identity. They remain because God said they would remain. And they're in their land because God said he would take them back to their land. It's prophecy fulfilled. And when my grandparents were growing up, these prophecies seemed crazy and impossible. But we're the generation that's seeing them and understanding. Another prophecy that makes sense to our generation is an increase of knowledge. Daniel 12, 4 reads, but you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. He told Daniel that two times. Roll it up, seal it until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Now, for centuries, people thought going here and there to increase knowledge meant travel. But today, we just pick up our phone or open the computer. We ask Siri or Alexa. I read an article in Time Magazine that said as soon as a technology is invented, it's already been replaced. I want to stick with technology for our remaining prophecies. Revelation 11 says that the entire world will be able to see the two dead bodies of the two witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, when my parents were growing up, they didn't own a TV in either of their homes. All they had was radio. So when they read this prophecy, that would have seemed absurd. The entire world is going to be able to see what's happening in Jerusalem? We could watch what's happening in Jerusalem today, all day long if we want. We can literally watch as much as we want anywhere in the world. Another prophecy in Mark 13, the apostles asked Jesus about the sign of his coming and the end of the age. And the first words out of the mouth of Jesus are, take heed that no one deceives you. Jesus was talking to some of his closest followers and he was telling them that in the time just prior to his second coming, that deception would be so prevalent that even those closest to him, even his closest followers could be led astray. And it's his very first warning to them. And verses 10 and 11, he goes on to say, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. If previous generations had a crisis of faith, it was worked out in a mostly private way. But today, if someone has a crisis of faith, they deconstruct their faith and they do it online. They do it on social media, they do it on podcasts, they do it on YouTube in front of a few hundred or a few thousand of their closest friends. And fall away in verse 10 means to put a stumbling block in the way of another, and it means to be offended in one, hindering me from acknowledging his authority. We've heard of many public Christians who have fallen away, and what that means is that Jesus offended them. The word of God offends them, and they can't acknowledge his authority. 
When we're offended by the word of God, it is so easy to get stirred up and to bring in a bunch of people with itching ears. And that leads to hatred, paving the way for many false prophets to rise and fill that vacuum, leading many astray. My grandparents never saw anything like it. But with technology today, we see the escalation of hatred and vitriol and the rapid spread of false information. Paul calls false prophets liars. And he said, savage wolves will come in among you. Come in right here, not sparing the flock. John calls them antichrists. And he says, they went out from among us. From among who? John was talking to the church. They went out from among the church. Jude says these false teachers crept in unnoticed. Deception is slick and subtle. And Jude said that they will perverse, pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These false prophets teach what Paul calls a different Jesus, another gospel. It's another spirit. And these deceivers offer a false peace, not the prince of peace. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It doesn't say that some will depart from a faith or faith in general. It says the faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says they'll teach a doctrine of demons. If it's not 100% the word of God, the Bible calls it a doctrine of demons. That's chilling and harsh, but God doesn't want anyone to fall for their deception. Paul said that these false teachers will have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, he says, avoid such people. The Bible actually says avoid them. Don't read them, don't follow them, don't retweet them, don't listen to them, avoid them. But 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that the falling away must come first and then the son of destruction is revealed. God told us in the Bible that this falling away would happen, but it's still hard to watch. Jesus goes on to say in Mark 13, 13, he says, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, not for Muhammad's name, not for Buddha's name, but the name of Jesus will be hated. The false teachers who offer another Jesus, they're not the ones who are hated because they're offering a sanitized Jesus, a safe Jesus, the Jesus who is so accepting of sin. Those who are hated are teaching the true Jesus, the Jesus who suffered and died for our sins, the Jesus who said, repent for the kingdom of God is near, go and sin no more. Hatred for the name of Jesus is increasing. 
It is said that there there were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. Every single day, 11 Christians lose their lives around the world because the name of Jesus is hated. And the only way for true followers to stand against deception is to know his voice. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And the only way to know his voice is to get into his word. Even if it means five minutes a day, it's a start and build from there. But it's impossible to know his voice if you don't know his word. And we need to pray. Ephesians 6, 18 says, for this reason, keep alert and never give up. Pray always for all God's people. We need to keep alert in these days and pray for each other. Paul told us to pray continually. He said, for this is God's will for you. It is God's will that we pray. Again, if you don't pray, build that prayer life. Start at five minutes a day and build it. Build a prayer life against deception for you and your family and for your church family. We have to cut through the noise. C.S. Lewis said, we live in a kingdom of noise. And the only way to cut through that is to put aside the time wasters and get in his word and know his voice. I want to finish with Mark 13. Jesus said that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the entire world. When my parents were growing up, the only way that the gospel went to the other side of the world was a missionary carrying a Bible. But today, because of technology, it's a whole new world for spreading the gospel. The Jesus film by Campus Crusade for Christ has been seen by over 6 billion people and translated into over 1,200 languages and counting. Wycliffe Bible translators said they will have a Bible in every language by 2042. And in Africa alone, 667 Muslims become followers of Jesus each hour, equaling six million a year. The gospel is spreading faster in Iran than any other country, and Iran doesn't have one single church building. The spirit of God is being poured out just like the prophecy from Joel, and the gospel is spreading throughout the world. Anne Graham Lott said that Jesus didn't say that everybody in the world would hear it, but that it would be preached to the whole world. Everyone in the world can hear the gospel. It may not be in their first language, but may be in a second language or third language. It might, not be, it might not be in a live presentation, but it could be in printed material through the internet, the media, ham radio, or even tweeting the gospel. The gospel is going out to the world and we're the generation that's seeing it. So what does this mean for us? Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what conduit does. And that's what conduit will continue to do. Jesus also said, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
Jesus, uh, salt makes people thirsty. Salt, salt prevents decay. If you put salt on a wound, it goes to work cleaning and purifying that wound. Salt never adapts to a wound. So our job is to prevent decay and dying in this world. Our job is to make people thirsty for Jesus. And a little bit of light drives out the darkness. You know, we weren't given these signs to scare us, but to prepare us, to help us live pure, prayerful, and watchful lives, and to lead other Jesus, and to, to lead people to Jesus in this time prior to his coming. And you know, when we read the headlines, it may feel that we're in a downward spiral, but in Luke 21, Jesus says, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And we know from everything that we see in the world that things are looking up. But in the meantime, it can often be disheartening to watch the news and read the headlines. Our friend Carolyn Ahrens is a singer-songwriter and she lives in Canada. And she tells the story one time when she was a little girl, she was listening to two missionaries speak in church on a Sunday morning. And they were from some steamy jungle somewhere. And she said that one day when they were in their home, an enormous snake that was much larger than a man, much longer than a man, slithered its way into the front door of their home and they went running out the back door of their home. And they found a local villager who came in wielding a machete and he lobbed off the head of that snake. And he told them that the mammoth snake had been defeated, but it would take a while for it to realize it was dead. And they said that they stood out in that steamy heat for the next several hours, listening as that snake thrashed about, wreaking havoc inside their home, until its body finally understood that it no longer had a head. And at some point, there was a mutual epiphany between the husband and wife, and the husband said, do you see it? Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. But in the meantime, he's going to do some damage. We're in the season prior to Jesus's return. And the signs in the world tell us that it's thrashing time. Satan knows his time is short and he's thrashing about. But the Bible says that Jesus has already crushed the head of the serpent. So things are looking up. And the bride of Christ waits. The true bride of Christ says, come quickly. Lord Jesus, we're in the season of Christ's return. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you're not in Christ, the Bible says that today 
is the day of salvation. It says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved and you will be part of the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are the generation that is seeing so many of these signs. We thank you that you have chosen us to be your watchmen on the wall, to set up on those ramparts and to see what's coming, to see what's up ahead so that we can let others know that the kingdom of God is near. Teach us in these days, teach us from your word. I pray that you will give each one of us a desire for your word. Give us a, a desire for prayer. Give us a desire to hear your voice and teach us to hear you. Lord, make us strong, make us salty, make us even brighter in these days so that people will see us and, and not say something like, oh wow, what an incredible man or what an incredible woman she is, but say, what an incredible God she must serve. Purify us and make us holy, Lord, because you are holy. Believing in faith, we ask all of these things in your name, the precious name of Jesus, amen. You're dismissed, thank you.